Pastor Andrew. Um, so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have the pleasure and honor to uh, read scripture with you this morning once again. Uh, if you can all pull out your Bibles or cell phones, that way you can turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. <clears throat> For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And God, we pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight this morning. Thank you for being with us by your spirit. We open our hearts and we invite you to do, to speak, to cause us to see, to help us to realize things that maybe we didn't realize when we stepped in here this morning. Not because of anything in me a value of wisdom, but because of your word and the way it guides us and directs us, that it's living and active. Lord, we open up this text together this morning with great anticipation and hope. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So preachers often talk uh, about application, applying a particular passage to our head, heart, hands, the way, you know, how does this text change the way that we think about ourselves or God or the world? How does it change what we do with our hands? How does it change how we feel about the world? And sometimes those applications, I'm sure you've experienced uh, when I've been up here or others have been up here, can be quite elaborate. But sometimes the application of a particular text, I think, is simply that God wants us to say, wow. He just wants us to say, wow. He wants us to, to have that moment of inspiration where we recognize how unique and incredible and wonderful God is or how special his actions have been on our behalf. And then as we realize that, that incredible awesomeness of God, as we have that sense of wow, things start to change inside of us that we don't even realize. We don't have to control or orchestrate 
the entire process of application. When, when we have a wow moment, it's like how we live and move and have our being just, just begins to be shaped by that moment. And I think this is a text like that this morning. Uh, I wrote my master's thesis on uh, the parable of the pearl. Let me read this to you. This is, this is not the text, but it helps shed light. I'm going to do a double thing here. This text is going to shed light on how we move through our primary text. Matthew 13, 45, the parable of the pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And as I spent, you know, over a hundred something pages uh, sort of exploring this little parable, uh, my conclusion was that this is a parable of perception. It's a call to recognize the value of the kingdom of God above all else. And, and here's why I'm bringing this up now is because perception, perception is a key force in spiritual growth. Perception is a key force in spiritual growth. When we see who God is, when we see who we are in light of God, when we see what the world is in light of who God is, then something gets activated in us and transformation happens. And in some ways, it's the, it's the best kind of tra- transformation. You have to orchestrate it. It's spontaneous. It emerges from us. Perception is a key force in spiritual growth. Once you really see who God is or what he's done, you're motivated to align your life accordingly. And in this parable, um, you know, to put it in the language of this parable, to sell all that you have for the one thing that's most valued. So in today's text, which we're going to open up here again, as uh, Devon has already read it for us, what I think Paul wants us to do is to see, and he wants the Corinthians to do this, first of all, and then, you know, we as sort of like historic, we, we, through the passage of time, get to sit and listen in on this same uh, moment. What he wants us to do is to see something about God that's both remarkable and beautiful. And that's going to activate some change. And the reason he wants the Corinthians to see it is because if you go back earlier in the passage in the chapter, he wants them to be enriched in Christ. So this is part of them being enriched in Christ. He wants them not to lack any spiritual gift, verse 7. He wants them to be sustained in Christ, verse 8. He wants them to be able to overcome the divisions that have plagued them, verses 10 through 17, the passage that Pastor Paul so uh, wonderfully took us through. I don't want to say eloquently, um, but thoughtfully took us through last week. Um, And and, and this is what God has for us uh, as well. So what is this amazing truth that um, the Apostle Paul wants uh, them, the Corinthians, to see and then he's going to change their perceptions and change their lives. And he wants us to go through that same process. What is this amazing truth? And it's right there in the text. I'm just going to give it to you right up front. Verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's the wow moment. All right, let's dig in. Simple truth changes our lives. This simple truth changes our lives. And here's how we're going to review it. Just like with the parable of the poor, we're going to see it, we're going to value it, and then we're going to talk about how to live it. So we're talking about seeing it, valuing that truth, and then living it. All right, see it. God's least is greater than the world's most. God's least is greater than the world's most. Uh, many of you know me, you know that I'm a, a cycling fan. I, I have biked for a long time. I haven't done many um, 
cycling illustrations of late, so I don't want you coming up and telling me you're sick of cycling illustrations. I've taken a long break, but I've been back on the bike a little bit and really enjoying it. And um, one of the funny things about cycling is that cyclists record all their data. They record all of their data. And so you can see speed and time at any moment in your ride. And not only that, you can actually see the, the amount of power that you were putting out in a given moment, measured in watts. Um, and so for about a decade or so, you know, I was pretty serious about this. I would put in uh, eight hours, about 120 miles a week, which is not crazy. I mean, I had to, you know, do the things I need to do as a father and a pastor. Um, and then I would squeeze this in. And, and I rode with uh, a, a, a group in the East Bay that were very intense. Many of them rode 250 miles a week. Uh, very serious cyclists. They had been former collegiate cyclists and semi-pro uh, cyclists, like with uh, Team Cliff Bar and stuff. And I was pretty confident in my strength as a cyclist at that time. I felt it was. It, I felt good about it. But there was one thing that could always bring me back to earth, and that was uh, on certain roads. It was possible to see what an actual professional cyclist had done on that road. And not only could you see their time and their speed, but you could actually see the amount of power that they were putting out. And I would be dismayed to look and to see that on a same stretch of road, one of these pro cyclists would be putting out a third or even a half as much more power than I would put, be putting out on that road. And, and, you know, it's like, so to put that in, it, you'd be like, for my, for, you know, it would take me three or four legs to be able to do what they could do in two legs, if you want to put it that way. And I would look at that and I would, I would have these wow moments, this sense of awe, right, at what another person was capable of doing, at the, 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 the way that their body had been designed, the time that they put into it. Now, um, you maybe have had this moments like this before with a sport that you enjoy, um, with a hobby. Think about it. Think about the things that you love to do. Um, if you're an artist, a musician, a painter, and there's a moment when you sat before a painting and you realized, you know, I remember this when I was in studying in the Prado when I was living in Spain. And, you know, we had this instructor who would take us through his paintings. And there'd be these moments where you'd realize what this artist had done. So, for example, they were painting lace and through the lace you could see, you know, behind it. And then there would be shadows. And you just have this sort of this wow moment that, oh my goodness, um, and, and, and it inspires you and energizes you. Or maybe, maybe it's on the level of life itself. And these are some of the best moments for me where I have a profound realization of another person's ability to endure hardship, for example. I may be thinking, oh, I'm going through these hard things. And because I'm in that place of considering hardship, I look at somebody else's life and I remember how this person walked through a season somehow with joy and confidence and strength. And I marvel at their ability to do that. Or maybe it was uh, maintaining a sense of humility or their patience in moments of difficulty or any other spiritual quality. Think about those times when you've had an aha moment, a, wow, a sense of wow, when you realized the capability and the capacity of someone else. In these moments of realization, we come face to face with, with someone else's sort of surpassing greatness. And we end up with a sense of awe and humility and inspiration. And in this text, I believe Paul is creating this kind of moment for the Corinthians and for us. 
And understand, to understand it, though, you've got to understand a little bit of the background of this concept of wisdom and weakness and foolishness and power that he's unpacking throughout the course of this passage. So the background is there's two prevalent groups of people in Paul's day, and they had two different ways of measuring greatness. The Jews were looking for a sign. That is to say they were looking for the Messiah who would come. The Messiah would come and uh, show a great sign of his power and strength. He'd come on the clouds, according to the Old Testament. A messianic vision. And the Greeks, so, so, so society was divided up into these two groups. The Greeks would be a, a word synonymous for Gentiles, anybody who wasn't a Jew. And then the Jews, obviously, are uh, the Jewish people. And so when they looked at society, the Corinthian culture, they saw these two groups of people. And Paul's saying that the Jews seek a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, which would have been manifested primarily in persuasive speech, in uh, what we call oration, an orator, a great orator who stands up and is able to dive into the deep topics of life and present them in a, in a, in a poetic way um, and uh, to compel people through that speech. That was oration and it was a profound sort of uh, value in the Corinthian culture. And so it's having impacts on the church as the church tries to live out its existence within that culture. So you have the Greeks looking for wisdom and the Jews looking for a sign. So when the average Corinthian went looking for greatness, when they were saying, okay, what is, what is greatness? They were either looking for you know, a big sign or skillful oration. Anything truly great had to meet one of these two criteria. And I would just pause and say, isn't this what we always do with God? We set up expectations for God to meet. And if God doesn't meet them, then we're disappointed. And if that disappointment lingers and grows, then we turn away. Because God hasn't met our expectations. If you're really God, you'll do it this way. Right? And the problem is we often don't realize, and this is one of the, the deep forces at work in the Corinthian church, and I think it's been one of the forces that's been at work in the American church uh, for a long time, but especially throughout the pandemic and uh, in this season of deconstruction that we're in, uh, this deep force that's at work, um, we usually don't realize, we often don't realize that the expectations that we set up for God are influenced by the worldviews around us, right? Now, it's a dance, right? Because we want the, 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 the worldviews around us to challenge our beliefs, to cause us to deep think, think more deeply. But we also need to acknowledge that sometimes we embrace those worldly perspectives and they begin to pull us to put expectations upon God or God's people or the scriptures that, that aren't actually appropriate or uh, accurate to who God is. So our currently uh, world, worldly thinking, you know, needs maybe in some ways it's, it's crept in like with Corinthians or it was never rooted out. And so Paul is speaking into that. And, and the problem with this, the problem with this melding of sort of worldly perspectives and biblical views is what Pastor Paul talked about last week is that it gives birth to division in the church. It gives birth to division 
in the church. It's a source of a lot of division. So God seems to relish, relish shattering these expectations that we put on him. Um, these expectations that come, in, in this case, you know, the, the Jews wanted a sign of great power and the Greeks wanted, uh, you know, uh, the capacity of incredible eloquence. Uh, and, and those are expectations that are being put on God and his people. And God loves to shatter those expectations. And he does so in a wonderful way, in kind of a wow way. His powerful sign, this is what this text is about. His powerful sign is the cross, which is weakness. For Jesus to be there hanging on the cross, to die on the cross, is weakness to the world. And God's eloquent wisdom is the simple pronunciation, the heralding of the cross, which is foolishness to the world. We forget that the cross really meant what it really meant. I think we're so familiar with it. I have a cross hanging under my shirt here. You know, we wear a cross uh, around our neck and, and, it, and we're just so used to seeing the cross. We forget what this really means. What it stands for. What it would have felt like. I mean, a, a person in the time of Jesus or in the time of Paul, seeing us with a cross hanging around our neck would just be, their minds would be blown. They wouldn't understand how we could get to the place where we would wear a cross around our neck. One commentator puts it this way. The cross was a shocking image in the ancient world of evil, shame, rejection, and punishment. An equivalent image today might be a Hiroshima cloud or an Auschwitz gas chamber. Thus, for a cross to be a positive or significant thing is deeply ironic, even paradoxical. The cross is the opposite of a great sign. It's the anti-sign. It's, it's a countersign. It's the sign of weakness. And the announcement of the cross was a joke compared to the work of the orator. The, the ancient world had heralds and orators. Heralds would come and they would go into the town square and they would just speak what the king told them to speak. And nobody really cared about the herald you know, they didn't, they didn't go around talking about what a great herald they, they were, right? But the orator would come to town and the orator would stand in the square and he would deliver an eloquent speech that was exquisite and insightful. And people would applaud the orator. You had these two contrasting voices in the ancient world. No one applauded the herald. But everyone applauded the orator. I get this image that, you know, all the Corinthians are in the middle of this frantic search for greatness. And they're identifying leaders um, who embody the traits that they uphold as, as being great. And then they're dividing themselves off as they align with these different leaders. They align themselves into different camps. And, you know, we can get this same dynamic in the church setting. And you're seeing this in, in individual church settings and you're seeing this in the larger church setting. We all go to different media or social media outlets and we adopt their particular views. And then we try to bring them back into the church context. And then this partly explains why we have a hard time seeing eye to eye. And Paul's watching this unfold from afar 
Um, and he's, he, he sits back and he says, he makes this simple proclamation to them that's captured in this text. He says, you know what? God is so awesome that he can do more with weakness and foolishness than, most world, than the most worldly powerful people or the most, most worldly wise person. So don't elevate their wisdom uh, or power above Christ. In other words, God at his worst is better than people at their best. And that's the wow moment. That's the moment of um, seeing the true greatness of God. That in the cross, which was a sign of weakness, and in the proclamation of the cross, which was a sign, which is a, a sign of foolishness, God can do his greatest work. That's the wow moment that Paul is going for. It's perception that he's pressing us towards. So we have to see it. But then we have to take it a step further and value what is being said here. And that's going to call us to let go of our idols. It's one thing to see what Paul's saying. It's another to value it. Remember the parable of the pearl. The first step was to see the pearl And the second step was to acknowledge its value as above all else. And we have this, you know, we have this wonderful dialogue in Justin Martyr's uh, dialogue with Trifo. This comes back from the year AD 150. And you see this, this sense of kind of idolatry playing itself out in this conversation, this ancient conversation. So Justin uh, Martyr is trying to convince a rabbi named Trifo that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and they're talking about a passage of scripture in Daniel 7. And listen what, what the rabbi replies to Justin. He says, Sir, these and such like passages of scripture compel us to await one who is great and glorious and takes the everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days as son of man. But this, your so-called Christ, see Justin's trying to say that Jesus is the Messiah, and, and, and Trifo's saying, no, he can't be. But this, your so-called Christ, is without honor and glory, so that he has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified. Back in Deuteronomy 21, 23, it literally says that a, a, a hanged man is cursed by God. And so Trifo's saying, this can't be the Messiah because he's a hanged man. And so Trifle fails to, to value the cross appropriately because doing so would mean giving up a cherished belief that he's holding on to. And that's sort of the fundamental key point for us. Hold on to that. Now let's talk about the order. Think about what it would be for the order to value the cross. The order uh, to value the cross, he's got to turn his back on the constant adulation and praise from adoring crowds And uh, he has to embrace a message that really in his ears is foolishness. And so you got to let go of the idolatry of oration, of the adulation and the praise that comes from the crowds who say, "What what a deep, insightful person this is. So actually valuing the foolishness and the weakness of God requires that idols be let go of. So when you think about what are those idols, I had a moment recently, um, this is a very, I, I was debating whether to share this illustration because it's like a church nerd 
illustration. Um, I was at a meeting with, which we do annually with our denomination. We're part of the EFCA, Evangelical Free Church of America. And I was at this meeting. There's about 120 of the leaders of this denomination gathered in a room. And we were doing um, this uh, get to know you thing. And so everybody was standing up and there was a youth pastor. They're the worst, right? Um, leading this thing, you know, I'm married basically to a youth pastor. So, um, but, but uh, the, he had this, this game that we were going to play where he would say, okay, uh, trying to figure out who's Mr. or Mrs. EFCA. And so would ask us a question about the EFCA. And if you replied, no, you had to sit down. If you reply, and then there'd be, you know, ideally one person standing. Well, the very first question um, that they asked was, sit down if you have not read Evangelical Convictions. Okay, now Evangelical Convictions is a book of theology. It's sort of our core theological book. Now let me, let me uh, explain to you. Now my reputation in this group of people is that I'm kind of a bookish theologian type. And, and I'm going to level with you and be honest. I kind of cherish that sense of identity within that group of people. But as luck would have it, I have not read from cover to cover evangelical convictions. So here in the group of 120 people, I realized in this moment, okay, Lord, I guess this idol's about to be dashed. And so I sat down. And that's when things got kind of crazy. Uh, I hear a voice behind me, no way. <laughs> and I turn around and a guy's literally pointing at me. And then I hear another guy over here say, oh, now I don't feel so bad. And he sits down. And then the MC, youth pastors, the worst, big booming voice, he gets on his microphone and he says, oh my goodness, Andrew Hoffman has not read Evangelical Convictions. And now the whole room is looking over me and there's the author sitting, you know, two tables away. <laughs> just kind of like this staring at me, right, as I'm sitting in there. And it just went on and on. And I, we went on a break, came back from the break, and there's 15 copies of Evangelical <laughs> Convictions sitting on my chair. Miguel went traveling to Colorado a few weeks ago, and he met a guy who was there, and the guy said, hey, ask Andrew if he's read Evangelical Convictions again. <laughs> so it just went on and on and on, right? And so uh, there I am feeling like a fool. But I'll tell you what, so I did not get you know, Mr. EFCA, because I was the first one, one of the first ones to sit down. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but you know what? I'm going to make the entire cohort is going to read, Gospel Academy cohort is going to read the book, so we're going to do it together. Uh, so here's the thing. I felt foolish, um, but I'll tell you, a funny thing happened. So many people came up to me afterwards and said, hey, that was funny, but you know what? Honestly, I appreciate your honesty in that moment. You didn't have to do that, but you sat down, right? To me, so by the end, I was like, wow, that was actually a good thing. That moment where I felt so foolish, I felt like the, I just felt like a fool, right? God turned around into something that manifested his call, in this case, for us to be people of honesty and integrity. And that's the way it goes with the foolishness of the gospel. We think that we're giving up important things, 
but what we get is so much more. So we have to constantly ask ourselves two questions. What foolishness am I afraid of that keeps me from valuing the cross above all else? What foolishness am I afraid of that keeps me from valuing the cross above all else? Are you afraid that your family, your coworkers, your student peers, or others are going to view you as foolish because of your beliefs? Do you change your behavior so that they will not think, so they will think you less foolish? Right? These are hard questions. Do you change your beliefs so they will think you less foolish? So you'll fit in. That's the, that's the refining question that this text is causing us to ask over and over again. What weakness am I afraid of that keeps me from valuing the cross above all else? Is your life actually not all that awesome and so you wonder how anyone could want you want to have Christ like you do, right? I know that's the case with me. When, when things are not going well, I want to hide my weakness away. But it's in the midst of the weakness that so often Christ works. Just like it was in the cross that God accomplished his most powerful act ever in the history of the world. Can you believe that? The cross of all things. That's where God does his work. So we have to not be afraid of foolishness and not be afraid of weakness. When you're at a point of failure or weakness or poverty of spirit, do you remove yourself from spiritual practices right? That happens. And church community and the life of witness because you think that only the strong are worthy of such things. Mm. It's in the moments of weakness where God may just be doing his most powerful work. So we have to become the people who value weakness and foolishness, at least in the eyes of the world. We are the people who value and are willing Willing to sell everything else for it. For the foolishness of the cross and the weakness of the cross. Which takes us to the last thing, which is we got to live this. We got to adopt weaknesses, weakness and foolishness as our way of life. Uh, it's shown in the parable when the merchant sees the value of the parable, but it doesn't just stop there. He goes and he sells everything he has to buy that pearl. And that's the moment when it moves from being theoretical to real. He sells everything he has to buy that pearl. Here's how we live in the weakness and foolishness of God. Be a countersign. There will come a day when we will be the victorious cloud people. Daniel 7, right? Jesus coming on the cloud and it's going to be the victory of Christ the Bible teaches from beginning to end, soup to nuts, that, you know, Jesus is coming back. There's going to be this day of victory, um, and it's going to be awesome, and we will be part, we will be swept into that glory. There's going to be a day when we are the cloud people, but right now, we're the cross people. We are the people of the cross, and that is the countersign that this world so desperately needs, and it is visible when we embrace our weakness, when we embrace our cross, our Christ-likeness, our cruciform life, the weakness of God, the foolishness of God. We got to get used to it. We just have to get used to the weakness of God. Stop trying to be great in the eyes of the world be another way to say it. Just let it go. Just stop trying to be great in the eyes of the world. It's a fool's errand. It's a fool's errand. 
And in those moments when you just feel like your idols are being dashed and you're making a fool of yourself, those are often going to be the moments. Those are often going to be the moments when God does his most powerful work through you. I've seen it over and over and over again, not only in my life, but in other people's lives, but most importantly, in the life of Christ. Be a countersign. Embrace that we are cross people, that we are weak. Be ready to suffer. That's where Jesus went. He went the opposite way from what the world was saying. And we're followers of Jesus, so we go the opposite way. Okay, that's the first one. Second one is be a herald. A herald is not an orator, right? And a herald can appear foolish to the world. There was a moment when I was in seminary where I was really into the gospel of Matthew and I had like every paragraph memorized. I was digging into it. I was so drawn to it. I was so excited about the gospel of Matthew and I came up with this really creative uh, interpretation of the gospel of Matthew and I took it to my professor and I shared it with him. It was so wonderful. I can't even remember what it is today. Um, I shared it with him and he began to poke some fairly large holes and I started to argue with him, which was my way. And so we kept arguing back and forth. And then finally, he just sort of stepped back and he gently said, are you more interested in being creative or accurate? I haven't forgot that moment, right? The order is creative. The herald is accurate. For the herald, it's about accuracy and reach, right? For the order, it's about adulation, creativity, etc., right? And I've been taught as a, as a literature major that, you know, to be creative like that was what you needed to do. And here I had to, I had to make the conversion from order to herald. And that's what my professor was helping me to do. And that's what God wants all of us to do, just to simply tell the message. This is who Jesus is, to proclaim the gospel. Lastly, be a uniter. We center our lives, when we center our lives on the cross, uh, we're cruciform people. We, we, that just has to do, you're, you're, you're people who are formed by the cross. And what's going to happen with that is we will naturally be pulled together. We said this in the first week in this, that, that like spokes in a bike, you know, as, as we move towards the hub, we're actually moving closer together. And as we move away from the hub, which is Christ, we move further, further apart from each other. And that's the, one of the key points that Paul is making in the first part of the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, look, if we're going to have some hard conversations, if we're going to deal with the tough things in this world, the tough things in your lives, the tough things, you know, period, we need to be people who are focused and rooted in the cross. And once we do that, we'll be able to deal with all manner of things, all kinds of challenges. So it all, but it all starts with this moment of, wow, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Wow. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Wow. God at his worst is better than people at their best. So keep on trusting God's foolishness. Keep on trusting God's weakness. And he will not let you down. Let's pray. God, everything in us wants to be strong and wise. We want to appear strong and wise to the world around us. But you 
are so powerful, so awesome, that actually you accomplish your greatest things through what appears to be foolishness and weakness to the world. So we give ourselves to you again today. We know there's all kinds of idols and things that are keeping us from really giving ourselves to you. Break through those. We give ourselves to you today and just ask that in those moments when we feel like a fool, in those moments when we feel like uh, just overwhelming weakness, that you would teach us afresh that those are the moments through which you do great things and your kingdom moves forward. We want to be your people. We want to be like Jesus. We don't want to be the the herald, we don't want to be, we don't want to be the orator, I mean to say. We don't want to be the one looking for a sign, attaching everything to power. We want to be like you. So guide us, fill us, lead us, speak to each of us individually in that idol that we need to let go of, and move us forward in your grace, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.